Hi, I'm Sean, and welcome to the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. In today's episode of the show, I am joined for the third time by the wonderful Cornell Volak. Today we talk not only about the future of performances and why people still do want to go to concerts in a digital world, but also Cornell's second book on embouchure drills. His first one was on articulation. It's worth mentioning that our conversation did take place long before this current pandemic situation, so we don't really address many aspects of actually taking performances online, but I might actually need to get back in touch with Cornell about this because I do appreciate his very interesting, intellectual, and original take on on matters like this. So if you enjoy the show and want free episodes delivered straight to your device, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to access extended ad-free versions of today's episode and many others while supporting the production of the show at the same time, please visit clarinet.com slash subscribe to become a patron. You'll get immediate access starting at just $1 per month and can cancel at any time. Don't forget Clarinet also has a fledgling YouTube channel and I'm giving away something extra special at 10,000 subscribers. For a chance to win, you must be a subscriber and you can do this now at youtube.com slash Clarinet. I've actually got some new video content and video type interviews that have been going up there as well that have not been broadcast on the podcast yet and I haven't decided if they will be, so I guess if you want some extra content free of charge, head to the YouTube channel as well. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you especially to our patrons, all 62 of you now, and sponsors for making everything here at Clarinet possible. Imagine a reed that offers complex performance and sound, but is washable, recyclable, consistent, doesn't require moistening, and lasts for months instead of days. It's all possible with Legere Reeds, the world's leading synthetic reed brand made right here in Canada. Legere Reeds are used exclusively by some of the world's greatest clarinetists, including Eddie Daniels, Corrado Giuffredi, David Schifrin, and many others. And now it's your turn. Experience Legere Reads at your local music store or by heading to Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. Encoda is a new app that lets you stream, practice, and perform tens of thousands of music scores. It's kind of like Netflix or Spotify, but for sheet music. Get a free trial today. Just search for Encoda on your device's app store. That's Encoda, N-K-O-D-A. Take your clarinet to the next level with a new mouthpiece, barrel, or bell from Bakun Musical Services. With 14-day trials, free shipping on eligible orders, and expert advice, you can be sure you're making the best choice for your musical needs. If you're shopping during the month of May 2020, you'll also get a free Bakun Bell keychain with your order while supplies last. So shop now at bakunmusical.com and use code CLARINET to save 10% on your next accessory purchase. That's bakunmusical.com and don't forget to use code CLARINET at checkout. Coming directly today from Kingston, Ontario, Canada is the third time that the wonderful Cornell Volak has been on the podcast. Cornell, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me again, and it's my pleasure to be back. So you've been all over the place since we last chatted, and I believe actually your first conversation, you came to me from Victoria, Canada, the second one from Toronto, and then you've since been to dozens of cities all over the place touring, and why don't you give me and the audience a little bit of an update as to how your musical and entrepreneurial life has been since we last chatted? With pleasure, Sean, with pleasure. It's been um, a roller coaster when it comes to handling a few things at the same time, namely a university position and entrepreneurial pursuits such as a performance career. Yes, the first time we spoke, when you interviewed me, I was based in Victoria, BC, Canada, where I was a sessional instructor of clarinet at University of Victoria. Um, next time we spoke, I was in Toronto right after I published my first book on articulation types. Um, and now, a few years later, 
I'm talking to you from Kingston, Ontario, where I am newly appointed assistant professor in clarinet at Queen's University. So this is my university career in a nutshell of the last three years. And uh, in terms of performing career, I have to say that it's been going very well, primarily for my duo named Bridge and Volak duo, uh, which is a kind of an accordion duo. We tour pretty much all over the place, which is um, North America. We just came back from a four-week tour of the Midwest states of the United States. We have a lot of runouts to Europe. We spend the entire summer performing um, and having different residences in Europe yeah, this last summer. We recorded an album. Uh, we've been to South America. And um, the future of the duo is looking very promising. We're looking at extensive touring periods over the next three to four years. We just signed in with a very young and extremely um, entrepreneurial agency called Cadenza Artist Management. They operate out of LA. This is our first season with them and it looks like it's going to be more and more busy. So I'm sure that I missed a lot of things out of their report, <laughs> but I think more will come out over the course of our conversation. Well, I definitely want to encourage people to check you out if they uh, do see that you're coming to their city or town. I had the great fortune of seeing you guys perform in Airdrie, Canada, which I believe is Michael's hometown. And you know, just to quickly recap for people who didn't listen to the last episode, which you should go back and do, by the way, it was a really snowy night, a really small venue, and it was a very kind of intimate audience. So it sounds like you're playing some much bigger venues now. So I feel sort of fortunate to have seen that. Well, my pleasure if you liked it, uh, that you felt well entertained. We now definitely have moved on to much larger venues. Uh, there are still soft-seated theaters, but now ranging between 800 uh, to about 2,000 seats. Getting booked for larger and larger concert series across the U.S. and Canada and also Europe, pushing the boundaries of our musical pursuits as much as you can. We still are extremely committed to classical music. Uh, however, coming up with more and more innovative ideas in terms of arrangements of such repertoire, especially because Michael Bridge is performing now most of the time when we tour on a digital accordion, which gives us an incredible variety of sounds and percussion and opens up a lot of new doors to new arrangement possibilities. I'm reading a book on video production right now, and it talks about how there are two types of video, entertaining and off. And what that means basically is that if someone's not entertained, they're not watching the video. Do you think that applies to music? And do you think that modern musicians need to do a better job of keeping crowds engaged? This is quite a complicated question, Sean, because... We have to ask ourselves, why do people still come to live concerts, if we're talking about live concerts? And we also need to ask ourselves why people listen to music. You can listen to music for all kinds of reasons at your own leisure. 
However, the question about why people come to live shows and live performances is, I think, more current one, especially in regards to what I have been doing and experiencing. If it is not for the experience of, let's say, a symphony orchestra, then people really do come to live shows because they are interested in the personality of the artists and also in the whole overall experience of the presentation of the music. So it becomes more and more personal these days, which is very interesting, given that the technology could make it, and it does make it, 100% accessible online to everyone, regardless where they are. Yet people still decide to leave, you know, their homes and drive or walk or commute to venues to hear live shows. And I think for young musicians, it's very important to keep their eyes on the ball. And the ball is exactly that question. Why do people still want to get out of their homes and go and experience live concerts? And the answer to that will be also personal, depending on the artist and what the particular artist has to offer. But the answer to that question will be ever-changing as people's tastes are changing and the times are changing. So it's very important to stay current on our personal likings and on likings of our audiences and trying to find the common ground, which can be shifting constantly from, let's say, wanting to hear a particular piece of music that is on the program or hearing an original arrangement or hearing actually even the artist him or herself speak of the stage and, and promoting their personalities. This is also why very often these days so-called personality shows are getting more and more viewers and attendees. Uh, at concert halls. So it's a very important question to ask. Thank you for bringing it up. However, I don't think I have enough feedback <laughs> and enough statistics to answer it fully. I, I'm afraid I have to leave it at that. I think you gave good insight though, because I think what you're, if I may, you're kind of saying that it's people. People still want to experience people and they want to do that in person. And I can relate to this. I mean, I'm a huge fan of a band called Radiohead and I, they, whenever they have their concerts, they allow people to stream them because they want to allow people who aren't there to, to see them. So you can go on websites and stream these concerts live. But the weird thing about the streaming is it doesn't discourage people from going. It actually ends up making their shows wildly popular and they sell out almost immediately. <laughs> well, that proves the point that somehow on some level they are being relevant that, I, that they are being likable uh, by people for some traits of their personalities. But you're right, though, because why would I stream so many concerts? Like, I must have streamed at least 10. Why would I then decide to go to one? Like, I've kind of seen it already. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, then, then you really want to make sure that they stay true to their product. You see, you want to get to know the people behind the product that you really enjoy. It's an interesting one. I think there is a lot more to be said about psychology of this process than we can possibly uh, cover <laughs> on the show here. 
but I understand where you're coming from. And uh, I'm in support of an artist of constantly asking yourself a question, why do people want to come out and hear me live rather than listening to my YouTube recording, right? So um, this is why uh, very often me and my duo partner, uh, Michael Bridge, incorporate elements of storytelling and or comedy or satire in our shows because it seems like people really connect with you much better the bonding is stronger when they can uh, identify with what you say through light humor and sometimes often more often than just sometimes meaningful gestures meaningful comparisons uh, of the stage to various aspects of life and so on this is what Leonard Cohen was known for, you know, he would uh, speak to people oftentimes with a lot of um, references, you know, to, to life's issues. So this kind of uh, feelings, when they start being awakened, they, they also magnify the level of intensity of with which people perceive the music, you see, uh, if this is a musical show. This is the times we're living in, and right now everyone wants to find something for themselves. This is why they want to go on and check out the artists and see if they relate to the artists on a personal level. Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's definitely a fine balance and you guys have struck kind of the, no pun intended, but accord with that because, um, you know, one could go too far. I mean, if you focus on entertainment, you risk turning your musical product into like a circus show. But if you don't do any, I've seen concerts um, even a couple of years ago, I won't say the name of the group, but they basically did a piece where they played a cactus and with some introduction into what it was about, it would have been very interesting, but no one said anything. Someone just walked out on stage and played this cactus for 15 minutes and then left. And we were all kind of left really shocked. <laughs> I think it's the late Harry Sparnai who said something like, you know, you've spent so much time with this music. It's important that you introduce it to the audience in a way that they can relate, you know? Yeah. Give them the key to unlock the mystery of the piece or that composer story or something. Or even why you're interested in it, you know? So anyways, um, Thanks for indulging me in that. It was something I was thinking about before we went on air here. So you just mentioned you've released a new book, a second book. Um, your first one was about tonguing, and this one is about embouchure. So I'm wondering if there was a reason that you prioritized tonguing and then went to embouchure, and, uh, or if it just was the second thing you decided to address. One of the most important aspects of clarinet playing is articulation. And articulation, I think, is one of the most important aspects of life. <laughs> Communication. We can communicate much more efficiently and clearly when we articulate clearly and when we know how to articulate. And the same thing refers to music and to playing. That was pretty much the number one reason for which I prioritized in that order. Also because the research that I have started with the speech language pathology department at University of Toronto three years ago gave me enough feedback to be able to put together enough materials in a form of a book about articulation. Uh, some time has passed since then and I felt like I had more intimate understanding about the intricacies of oral articulators that would give me more insight into the embouchure as a whole. And this is why the second book treats about the embouchure. And I also know how important it is to provide as many creative embouchure drills to try to explain with greater precision 
how the ambassador should work and also how to prevent any possible playing-related injuries that are often results of using too much force of certain muscles over others. So these are the reasons behind this natural succession of the two of my books. That's one thing I loved about your book. Right away, you made a point that embouchure is a very unique thing. Do you think it's dangerous for one to prescribe and a one-fits-all solution? I do not think there is such a thing as one fit them all kind of solution. I think embouchure is, is so unique. I, I talk about this in my book. It's so unique, depending on the individual building and crafting their own embouchure, that this is why it requires as many drills to build it as possible. And that's number one. And number two, what embouchure requires is flexibility. You know, it is the flexibility that makes things durable, <laughs> you know. So when something is flexible, it means it's less likely to break. But in order for any material to be flexible, we are looking at balancing its structure. So there must be certain balance when we talk about embouchure between different muscles maintained in order for the embouchure to be flexible and to be um, durable and pain-free, most of all. How would you generally define embouchure if you were going to be explaining it to somebody, for example, over the radio? <laughs> Let me pull out the definition of the embouchure that I'm presenting in my book. So when I go to glossary of terms, I start with the embouchure, and it reads as follows. Embouchure is a state of dynamically balanced tension between the muscles that form and sustain it. Its efficiency depends on muscle control happening in response to and in anticipation of the ever-changing resistance of air pressure of different notes on the clarinet. This process makes the embouchure dynamic in nature, unquote. So <laughs> that sounded very official, unquote, especially if I'm quoting myself. <laughs> <laughs> in the book, you set up a lot of exercises and drills that people can work on, but they seem to be based into four kind of categories. So you've got lip control, jaw force, tongue position, and air pressure. I divided them just for the sake of clarity in the book. However, it's very difficult to separate them. However, I find it necessary to try to separate them. You know, it is like athletes who prepare for a tournament. Let's take tennis, for example. We artists are, according to some definitions, uh, athletes of small, tiny muscles, right? If we believe that that's true, then we can draw a very nice parallel between, let's say, a clarinetist and, let's take tennis for the sake of my liking. Um, when there are interviews with professional tennis players, I often hear that they spend a lot of time in the gym working on different sets of muscles how to strengthen them, how to make them more flexible by stretching them, and also how to learn of using them separately. 
in order to support the entire apparatus of muscles, the entire system later in the game when you have to blend all the skills and all the muscles together in order to make a one good stroke. The same applies to the embouchure. There are hundreds of tiny muscles involved that are very connected, especially in our minds, to the point that when one wants to, especially at an early stages of clarinet career, uh, like a student, let's say, if a student who is an intermediate student uh, wants to, let's say, improve the tongue position and raise the tongue higher up within the oral cavity, very often they also raise the lower jaw, resulting in squeezing the reed in excessive jaw force. So by fixing one problem, very often another problem is being encouraged or invited into the game completely unconsciously. So only a year of the mentor can detect all these nuances because very often the novice ear is not tuned well enough to these minute changes in the sound. The only signal that such person will get after a while that something is out of balance is definitely a pain. Whether a, you know, the very famous TMJ or simply a pain on the lower lip being overly, you know, pinched with the teeth. Um, not even knowing where this pain comes from, what it is a result of. Because the pursuit was raising the tongue up. So I think it is important to have in our arsenal drills that will be focused on um, separating those muscles, at least at the very beginning. So there will be a concept of controlling different muscles rather than controlling them all with one, let's say, impulse sent from the master control, which is our brain. So this way, making differentiations uh, between, let's say, tongue, jaws, lips, and throat, and diaphragm, and training them slightly separately through separate drills will draw a very different picture in the mind of a practicing clarinetist than simply focusing on one random element of playing, let's say, let's choose blowing, and then focusing on blowing the air but losing track of the rest, you see? So this is why I believe in order to accomplish flexibility, we do need to first get the grip of controlling different sets of muscles of our embouchure separately and then blending all of them at will. So nothing would be left to chance. So chances of getting into a painful situations will be much lower than if we do it unconsciously. This is why I divided the drills into the sections you mentioned. So they're addressing different sets of muscles that participate in creating a working embouchure. I love this, you know, and it's one of the things you realize um, as you mature as a musician that you start off by kind of focusing on the fingers and, and things that you can see. But as you go on, you realize that most of making the music on the clarinet is using parts of your body that you can't see 
or that you don't have direct control over, such as your diaphragm. And so one thing that's interesting about this book is that you've, you've really made it easy for people to see what should be happening on the inside of the mouth, for example, with the pictures. Because I, I find embouchure and tonguing are two of the hardest things to teach because you can't get in there and see exactly what's happening with someone's tongue or their soft palate or their throat and things like that. So I just want to commend the graphics in here. Well, thank you very much, Sean. It's a lot of thoughts and countless redrawing went into the book, especially that I do not have talent for drawing. I had to use a very skillful graphic designer. So we spent quite a bit of time figuring out how to represent using, you know, visual symbols, some of the embouchure parts that one will be, you know, looking at and, and trying to internalize. Um, that's number one. And number two, going to what you just said, yes, this is our nemesis as clarinetists, um, not feeling exactly what is happening within our oral cavity. Number one, because we don't see it. And then also because we do not have a direct bio feedback. And what I mean by biofeedback is, for instance, if we move our tongue within our oral cavity, we do not have any sense of measurement other than our ears after many years of training them to be tuned to, to the nuance in the sound, uh, resulting in out of any changes happening within the oral cavity. We don't have any measurement or anything that would click at unit number 10 if the tongue is <laughs> at number 10 position or number 8 position or number 1 position. There's no such thing because the tongue is not touching anything almost. You know, between the upper palate and the tongue, we can't tell how much space there is uh, in any measurable units when we play. Almost we don't need to know once we learn how to do it instinctively. However, before we have that instinct in place, we do need some sort of drill that would help us understand what does it feel when we consciously change the position of our lip or tongue or our throat? What effect on the sound it has when we consciously change those things separately and then together? And this is something that could be very helpful if implemented in especially intermediate level of teaching clarinet and or saxophone, for that matter, any woodwinds but I can't speak with more authority about other woodwinds, of course. This is why I put so much stress on understanding through personal experience what it is that happens with the sound if X, Y, Z is being done. This is why I put down on paper all of the possible drills that I could think of that are useful and practical um, describing their effects on the sound. Well, I love this because I, I teach and think about the embouchure and, and tonguing and all these sort of internal things in much the same way. We would never really explain to someone, you know, to, to do something that they need to raise their soft palate 1.2 millimeters and, and open up their throat by, you know, another two <laughs> microns or whatever. Like we can't think about it that way. We can't execute it that way. And the music doesn't work like that, you know? Absolutely. Nevertheless, it's important to realize that this is exactly what is happening. Mm -hmm. Yes. So your exercises are mostly non-musical, and I wanted to sort of get into that. And why is that important? Why not just play and sort of discover through the music? 
when we play, our focus should be primarily on the expression of the music. It would be very difficult playing Mozart, let's say, or any other piece, thinking, aha, I have to lower my throat by this much. Aha, uh -huh, now I have to add a little bit more jaw pressure by two minigrams. Aha, <laughs> uh -huh, now I have to move my tongue at this speed. No, you, you can't think that because that, as you wisely said, it is not what music is about. So I start with these principles to give a player an idea of, of what should be done instinctively. Then we apply this to music without even really thinking about it. So this is why I broke it down to very simple steps. And I always like to start with explaining parts of the Hampshire. And I also like to start with explaining basic terms that are going to be used and what do they really mean. This is why I started with the glossary that explains, number one, what ambusher is. So the, the concept of the ambusher can be shaped slightly differently. So it's not something automatic. It's not something robotic. It's not something that, that is very organic, but it can be trained in a very organized way. Then I explain what working ambusher means. I explain what standalone ambusher means, what dynamic control is, what airbag pressure means, what voicing could be, what jaw pressure means, what tongue position is, what decoupling of various ambusher parts means, and what at the end, what could effortless playing mean because at the end when we perform music we want it to sound effortlessly but we obviously know that it's not the case that playing is not effortless playing clarinet takes a lot of effort however if the basics are down and properly understood then it is easier to progress to another level of performance that encompasses not burdening ourselves, our brain, with the technicalities of playing at all times to the high degree. We can lower the degree of preoccupation with the technicalities in favor of shaping the phrases, in favor of meaningful expression of the music that we are playing. So that's exactly the reason behind me coming up with non-musical, almost mini gym-like drills for the ambusher. Because when we play music, we want to have all of the puzzles put together and we want to be looking at the full picture. We want to be just free. So some of the exercises can be done without playing any music just to try to understand the concept of one's own embouchure, how to make it organic, how to make it flexible and dynamic. Um, so Cornell, where can people purchase your book? Because it's been released only this year uh, in October, it's for now only available through my website, which is www.cornelvolak.com/shop. Awesome! I'll put a link to that in the show notes. 
Absolutely. And this is where I would encourage you to go to get the book directly from me. You can have it delivered in a hard copy or you can also have it uh, sent to you electronically. So before we go, what's next? Are you going to plan a book on fingers or breath support or uh, anything else? The next material that I would like to release would be on contemporary techniques and some some materials on circular breathing, especially drills on how to make it easier to comprehend and then to do for us uh, clarinetists. But I think, and then that would also very nicely be linked in with uh, breathing techniques. And I think having a book on articulation, on embouchure, and on breathing would pretty much cover all the bases that I would need in order to successfully teach. Finger technique has been covered so widely for centuries by now that um, I don't think I would be the right person to add any new revelations to this aspect of clarinet playing myself. However, using the research in which I've been involved and my personal experience, I think I feel competent enough to publish materials on those three aspects of clarinet playing. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. If you are listening on iTunes or Spotify, this is where the episode will end. But if you'd like to hear the lightning round portion and a little bit of extra discussion, you can check out the members version on Patreon. To access that, head to clarinet.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you'd like to send me a guest suggestion, some feedback, or just want to say hi, you can contact me directly at feedback And I actually do respond to every message that I receive and love hearing from people all over the world. If you do like the show, be sure to subscribe, like I was saying at the beginning, to Apple Podcasts or wherever you do listen to your podcasts. And there is a fun and exciting giveaway coming up on the YouTube channel, so I especially encourage you to subscribe there as well. The address for that is youtube.com slash and I think you're really going to like what is the giveaway. And if you love the show, if you listened all the way to the end, you are a true fan and you are super awesome. But don't forget there's more to this episode and many others at clarinet.com slash subscribe. You'll get immediate access from just $1 per month to all these ad-free extended episodes. And a secret is I update the podcast there with a higher audio quality and you can still listen on your favorite podcast player. Again, that's clarinet.com slash subscribe. And it wouldn't be an episode without our wonderful sponsors. So thank you so much to Bakun Musical Services. As I was saying at the beginning, you can get a free Bakun Bell mini keychain, which is a hot item. I remember they gave those away at Clarinet Fest, uh, I think it was 2016 that I went to, and everyone got one of those in their little uh, grab bag, but now they've got them made again, and they're shipping them out with every order placed on the online store. So that's only while supplies last, and that's with any, I think it's with any order quantity on the Canadian or the global store. So no matter where you're shopping from, you can get a fancy little bell keychain to complement your clarinet accessories. <laughs> so you can shop now at bakunmusical.com and don't forget to use code clarinet at checkout for 10% off your purchase if you're buying accessories such as barrels, bells, mouthpieces, and things like that. 
Show is also brought to you by Legere Reeds. They're a product that I've been using for many, many years. They offer synthetic reed solutions for not only E-flat, B-flat, bass clarinet, but all the way up to the bigger clarinets too. I think they actually manufacture a contrabass clarinet reed now. So pretty amazing selection and of course, amazing performance. You can use them in all weather situations. They don't dry out and they're just a fantastic way to sort of take reeds to the 21st century. So check Legere Reeds out at your local music store or you can head to Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E. Com. And last but not least, we've got Encoda. Thank you so much for helping support the show. You can try out their new app. It's kind of like a Spotify, but for sheet music at Encoda.com. That's N-K-O-D-A.com.